Good morning. I love that song. It's really the only difference, the only distinguishing factor between people in this room is really that. Christ. Do you have Christ? Is all you have Christ? There's not people that are better than others in this room. They're not people that are more righteous than others, that are more pleasing in the, the eyes of God than others. There are those who have Christ and those who don't. And I pray that you all would have Christ. This week has been, uh, we've been trying to just get a glimpse of the glory of Christ so that you would see him as worthy and that you would bow the knee. Last night, we really asked the question, how will you respond to the cross? Because it is how you respond to the cross that dictates all of your eternity. Some of you have responded in faith, and we praise the Lord for that. Some are still considering whether or not he's really worthy. I pray that by the end of today even, that you would see him as more worthy than anything else. But some may ask, well, how do I know if I see Christ as worthy? How do I know whether I see him as worthy or not? Is there a way that I can test myself? Is there a way that I can examine myself other than just saying the statement, Christ is worthy? Remember, there will be those in the judgment that say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. There are those who can confess with their mouth the statement Christ is worthy and not see it in their hearts. So is there a way to test this? How do we know? You, maybe some of you for the first time this week have bowed the knee to Christ and repented of your sins and put your faith alone in Christ. What can you expect is going to happen in the days ahead? How can you test if you know Christ? I would like to propose this twofold statement to you all this morning. One, <clears throat> the heart of one who sees Christ as worthy loves and worships Christ. That may seem so obvious, and yet it is the distinguishing factor between those in this room who see Christ as worthy and who don't. You are always worshiping someone or something. The heart of one who sees Christ as worthy loves and worships Christ. And secondly, this is why it's a twofold statement, because the second part of the statement is linked to the first. The fruit of someone who sees Christ as worthy is a changed life. There has never been, nor will there ever be, someone who sees Christ as worthy and who goes away unchanged. So the heart of one who sees Christ as worthy loves and worships Christ, and it is because they love and worship Christ that the fruit of someone who sees Christ as worthy is a changed life. We are going to be discussing this very thing over the next three sessions in very specific ways. But let's start with that first part of the statement. And to do so, we need to read once again from Revelation 5. Because from Revelation 5, we see that phrase, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy are you. 
want you to see what happens when people see him as worthy. Revelation 5, verse 8. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. This is not a falling down like they just tripped. This is a falling down, a laying prostrate before God. Before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain. That's the cross and purchased on the cross for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And look at their response. The four living creatures kept saying amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. When you see Christ as worthy, you worship. That doesn't just mean singing songs. In fact, worship is so much more. Worship is in everything you do. The heart of those who see Christ as worthy worship Him. But they don't only worship Him. They worship Him because they love Him. Do you love Christ? If you say the statement Christ is worthy, but you do not worship Him and you do not love Him, those words are exactly that, mere words. 1 John 4.10 says this, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, that is the sacrifice for our sins. You say, okay, well what does that have to do? That's talking about the love of God for us. You just said we have to love God. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. You cannot love God until you first see His love for you. Indeed, you will not love Him. You may say, well, how do I know that I love God? Is it just an emotional response? Is it just some sort of warm, fuzzy feeling inside that I call love? Certainly, when you love God, that will affect your emotions, but it is not exclusively bound to your emotions. What I mean by that is this. Turn in your Bibles to John 14. You must be careful trusting your emotions, friend. Because sometimes your emotions don't seem like they love God. Sometimes you may not have a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. This is what it means to love God. John 14 
verse 15 says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. By the way, before we move on, that does not mean you will keep them perfectly. Nor does it mean that your works purchased your salvation. That's what we've been talking about. Jesus on the cross did what you could not do. This is not a works-based salvation. However, those who see the love of God and the works He did for you love Him. And when you love Him, you obey. Not perfectly, but this is a pattern of your life. Look down at verse 21 in John 14. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and, he, and will disclose myself to him. Look who comes on the scene. Verse 22. Just talked about him last night. Or sorry, this is not Judas Iscariot. I apologize. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. You say, I want to know if I love God. Do you obey? Do you even want to obey? Do you want to stop sinning? And you need to examine even that. Some of you might say, well, I need to stop sinning because I really, I just, I know I'm not supposed to do it. That's not enough. You should want to stop sinning because God, your Savior, hates sin. You should want to stop sinning because it is that sin it is for that sin that Jesus bled and died. Some of you might be thinking to yourself, maybe you've just been saved recently. And you might be thinking, maybe there's not a track record or a history of obedience. But here's what you can anticipate. If you want to know if you truly love God, you will obey Him. You will and we're going to begin to understand today why you will obey. Again, this is not some sort of works-based salvation. This is not a works-based assurance. This is a simple fact. Those who see Christ as worthy, obey. This flows into point number two, where we will spend the remaining portion of the morning. The fruit of someone who sees Christ as worthy is a changed life. And before we can get into specifics of what this changed life looks like, it should not be surprising to you that when you see Christ as worthy, there's change. Day one, morning one, session one, we said, you in your sins are dead. You are born with a heart of stone that does not beat. And in Christ, you are given a new heart, a heart of flesh that now lives. How can that change occur without change occurring on the external as well? I want you to pay attention to this. I'm going to read it for you. You don't have to turn there. Ezekiel 11 Verse 19 and 20, this is before Christ has come. This was the promise of what Christ would bring. Ezekiel eleven nineteen through 20 says this, And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Why? 
that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. This is important to remember. You cannot do what God requires. You cannot fulfill any command of God without a heart transplant. You will not. Any attempt that you make to change your life without your heart being changed first will not last. You see, the Israelites, when they were given the law, when they didn't know God, when they, were, when they still had a heart of stone, they were given the law, batteries not included. You can try to keep it. You won't. You have no power to. But in Christ, your heart changes. In Christ, there's a transplant that takes place. You were cold, dead, and lifeless, and now you are alive. This is a change of epic proportions. Not only that, not only were you made alive, but God dwells within you. Did you know that's the promise for every believer? Not only are you made alive, but the Holy Spirit now takes residence in you. Put very simply, you're made new, so you start acting new. It's really that simple. It should not be surprising to us that change occurs. It should be surprising to you if change doesn't occur. And don't hear what I'm not saying. This does not mean immediate perfection. This is why we continue growing in the faith. Continue becoming more and more like Christ. The first thing that changes in you when you see Christ as worthy are your affections. And I don't just mean your affections toward Christ. Yes, that changes. You once saw him as an enemy. You once saw him as foolishness. Now you see him as your only hope, your father, your friend. You love him, yes. But you do not just love him. You love the things he loves. Your affections are transformed. Jesus loves that which is holy and good, and he hates sin. He hates sin. You will notice this in your heart if you've seen him as worthy. You will love what he loves, and you will hate what he hates. You say, wait a minute, I thought Christianity is supposed to be a religion about love. What's all this hate stuff? God hates sin. He hates sin. You do not know the God of the Bible if you do not believe that. Anybody who presents God as only loving and cannot hate is not presenting a God of the Bible. They're presenting a false God. He hates sin, and he hates sin so much that he went to the cross to die for it. Because he had to maintain his holiness to let you in. Romans 12.9 says this for you, believer. Let love be genuine. Abhor. That means hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. You cannot love God and sin you cannot. Now, there may be moments in your life where it seems like you love sin more than God, but the believer will see it and repent and turn away. You cannot serve both. There is no such thing because that would be serving two masters. They are diametrically opposed to one another. This, we desire to hate what is evil, love that which is good. You were a child of the devil. Now you are a child of God. You used to love what the devil loved. Now you should love what God loves. 
You used to love your sin and rebellion, but now you hate that which you loved. You hate it because it offends the God who died for you. You hate the very thing that you used to seek for pleasure, and instead, now it produces pain. You see, when you go from death to life, you start to feel the pain of sin. I was doing some research on this specific disease. There is a congenital defect or a congenital disease called this congenital insensitivity to pain and anhydrosis. It is called CIPA. It is a rare and dangerous disease where someone is born and they cannot feel pain. If they were to fall, it would not hurt. If they were to be stabbed, it would not hurt. You might say, oh, that sounds really nice. This is incredibly dangerous because someone could stab you in the back and you would keep living and you wouldn't even know about it. You see, in your dead state, you keep sinning and you don't even feel it. It's leading you straight to hell. You think it's good for you, you keep walking. As you keep stabbing yourself with sin, you keep stabbing yourself with something that will kill you and you can't feel it because you're dead. But when you are made alive, you begin to see sin for what it is, something that kills you, something that you must do away with. You begin to feel sin in a way you never have before. This is the mark of a believer. The mark of a believer is not that you do not sin, but that when you sin, it hurts. When you sin, you hate it. When you sin, you don't stay there because you've been made alive. So I want to ask you, when you sin, what do you feel? Do you feel nothing? Do you feel as if it's completely normal? You want to keep doing it over and over and over and over again. Or when you sin, and maybe you taste that temporary pleasure, after those moments, you hate it. You see it. You want to reject it. In Christ, you want to obey. You want to please God. You want to do away with sin because you see it as offensive and something that will lead to death. Indeed, this is your command, believer. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says this, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You either love the world or you love Christ. There is no mixing the two. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, that's not from the Father, but it's from the world. Listen closely to this verse. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. You are going to face times in your life where you look around at the world and you say, man, really doesn't seem like they're suffering. Man, it doesn't seem like they're struggling. Man, the world doesn't have to get up on Sundays and go to church. Man, it seems like they've got it made. They just can do whatever they want. The world is passing away along with all of those lusts. But you who does the will of God lives forever. You see, it's not burdensome to get up on Sunday morning. It's not burdensome to come to Wednesday night church. It's not burdensome to sit in a session when you want to hear of God. There are people, there are people all around you that are living it up. And they will die in their sins 
if they do not turn away. Do not be tempted to think of that as appealing. When you sense your heart and your mind being drawn to the things of the world, read 1 John 2.17, passing away will all fade away. You see, the mark of a believer, again, is not that you are sinless, but now there is war. Those who don't know God do not war against the flesh. They do not fight the current. They're just taken downstream. It's where they want to go anyway. But when you are made alive, now your flesh which desires to sin is combated by the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. And I want you to know this, believer. The Holy Spirit is more powerful than your flesh. There may be some of you that, is, that are struggling with sin, and maybe you have said this phrase in your heart or in your mind, I can't beat it. I can't defeat it. I guess I'm just going to have to struggle with this to the day I die. Maybe there's an element of struggle that is true, but believer, you can overcome sin, not through you, but through the Holy Spirit. Any proclamation otherwise is, it may sound humble, oh, I just can't beat it, I'm just going to struggle. That is actually a denial of the Holy Spirit's power within you. There is now war, and this war is only temporary. The war has already been won. You serve the victorious God. But in the remaining time you have on this earth, there will be warfare. Are you at war? Or do you not sense this warfare in your heart? His commands are not burdensome, the war is not burdensome because you love God. And this change of your affections is at the root of every change in your behavior. This is why we do not tell you to just change your behavior. That's not the key. Your affections must be changed in order for your behavior to be changed. So you want to overcome a sin in your life? You might be tempted to pray, and maybe it's, it's fine to pray it. Please, God, help me to stop doing this. That's okay to pray, but that should not be your primary prayer. It should be, let me love you more than this. Because if you love God, it will in turn make you hate sin. And when you hate sin, you will put it off. Again, this change of affections may not happen perfectly overnight. It has not happened perfectly in my heart, but it will continue to change. It will continue to be conformed to what the Scriptures say. Rest assured, if you have war in your heart, if your affections are for holy things and not for the things of this earth, that is the work of God in you. These holy affections are what will make you combat the sinful affections of the flesh. But it is not just your affections that are changed. Yes, if you are a believer, if you see Christ as worthy, your affections are changed. It is not just that, though. Your purpose and pursuit in life is totally changed. Everything you lived for before Christ has now changed. You didn't live for Christ prior. Now you want to live for Christ. Before you turned from your sins, you had this singular purpose live for self. You did what you wanted to do. You did what felt right or felt good with no consideration of what God wanted. You only did what God wanted you to do when it was convenient for you. 
You listen to your parents when it's convenient for you to do so. When their plans match your desires, you're fine obeying your parents. But when it's something you don't want to do, you rebelled. And maybe you didn't rebel outwardly. Maybe some of you boast that I'm not a rebellious child, but inwardly your heart is rebellious. You only saw value in people who contributed something to you. You made friends with people who you thought can contribute to you. You're the master. You're the object of your own affections. Your singular purpose is yourself and what made you happy. And your desire for happiness is not necessarily wrong, but the places you look to get them are wrong. You followed the lusts of your flesh and the lust of your eyes fueled by the love for the things in this world. And your success was determined whether or not you achieved those goals for yourself. That was who you were before Christ. All about self. But in Christ, you lay down not some of that, you lay it all down. You lay it all aside because in Christ, you have died to self. You say, what do you mean? How do you know that? Romans 6.6 6 says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And now that you have died to that former pursuit you have a new pursuit. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. You know that very cross we've been talking about for multiple sessions. You, through faith, were crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Before you knew Christ, you loved yourself. Now you see Christ and you love him. You know, Paul used to wrap his whole identity in his own self-righteousness. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He kept the law as well as anybody could keep it. He had plenty of reasons to boast. But on that road, when he saw Christ, everything he boasted in was thrown out the wagon, thrown out the window. Philippians 3, 7 through 9 I want you to mark that. I want you to write that down. Is this true for you? This is the mark of a believer. This is the mark of someone who has seen Christ as worthy. Philippians 3, 7 through 9. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value or worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Is that true for you? Do you count everything you once held dear as rubbish in comparison to Christ? This is how your purpose and your pursuit changes. You no longer seek the praise of men. You seek to follow God. Paul no longer boasted in himself. He boasted in the cross. And now his pursuit is much different. He says this pursuit in Philippians 3.12-14. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, 
But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You press on towards holiness and your eternal inheritance. That is a totally different pursuit and purpose in life. You now live for Christ. You live to honor Him. You live and glorify Him. You want to make His name known. You want others to see Him as worthy. You won't want others to see Him as worthy if you don't even see Him as worthy yourself. And one day... What you have pursued, you will realize in heaven, eternity with Christ. Perfect bliss, no sin to hinder you. So I ask, consider, what is your life's purpose and pursuit? Is it to live for God? Not because that seems like the right thing to do, but because that's the only option after seeing the cross. Or is it to live for self? You know this deep in your heart. Maybe some of you are trying to suppress what the real answer is. Do not lie to yourself and so be deceived. But it is not only your affections that change. Yes, affections that change produce a new pursuit, a new goal but it is also your perspective on everything around you. Your perspective, that word really means the way you see the world, the way you view the world, the way you look on it, and the way you view things that happen in the world. It shouldn't be no surprise that if you have a new pursuit and a new purpose, that a new perspective comes with it. You say, well, what is that perspective? Philippians 1.29, this is the perspective of the believer. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You no longer have an earthly perspective, but a heavenly one. To live, that statement means every breath you take on this earth is meant for Christ. To die means it's far better because you're with Christ. This is how people can have the perspective, come, Lord Jesus, please come. Return, usher in your kingdom. Can you say that? Can you say, come, Lord Jesus? Some of you may be hesitant to say that because Him coming means judgment for you. But for those who are being saved, come Lord Jesus means salvation fully. This is why you gladly obey the command that we even mentioned last night. You gladly store up treasures in heaven because to live on this earth is for Christ. Not for yourself, not to accumulate any sort of wealth or power or fame. But to live is Christ. The things of this earth start losing the flavor. And they pale in comparison for what is to come. Just as you taste a nice juicy steak, you don't ever want to return to baby food again. So once you taste and see Christ, the world is so disgusting to you. And it is this very perspective that will allow you to suffer well. Young person, it would be good to consider this. There is a cost to following Christ. There is a cost. You will be persecuted. That's not optional. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not optional. You will be hated. 
It should be no surprise why you're hated because you have a world that is dead looking at someone who's alive. They don't understand you, nor do they have any desire to understand. They hate the things of God. They hated the master. They will hate his servants. But what perspective will keep you going? What perspective will keep you running? It is the perspective to live as Christ. To die is gain. For the believer, what is there to fear in death? It is only the lost person that fears death. The saved one does not fear death. Matthew 10.28 says this, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The believer has no need to fear because the one who destroys body and soul in hell is for you. He will not destroy you because he destroyed his son for you. And his son didn't stay dead. He took the wrath of God to pay for your sins and rose again, showing death was defeated. This is why the psalmist says this in Psalm 118.6, The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? If you die as a believer, you are instantly in the presence of Jesus. You will taste the eternal glory. It is in that way that through Christ alone, you can, in a sense, taunt death. Where is the sting? It is this perspective that will anchor you in the darkest days. I talk about my son, Grayson, a lot because my son, Grayson, I love my son. My son was only four and a half, very childlike faith. Remember, we've talked about this week. It's not the strength of your faith or the maturity of your faith. It's the object of your faith. And I remember, remember and I can't think about it very often because it's difficult. But I remember holding my son when the doctors came in and said, he's gone. I remember hugging as we were singing. I remember this. And I knew something was off because I could feel in the moment the warmth of life go out. Remember feeling that and thinking to myself, this can't be real. But in the moment, I remembered two things. One, I remembered something small, and it was this, that my son, Grayson, loved to race. He loved to go from point A to point B, and he loved me to cheer for him. He would keep asking me to do it again and again and again. Dada, do your announcer thing. I would announce him and have him start from the starting line and get to the finish line, and he would win the race every time. And I would cheer for him. And I also remembered, wow, my son, even with a childlike faith, knows Jesus. When he passed from death to life, he's with him. And so I looked at Victoria and I said, I think we should clap. I think we should cheer. I think we should clap for him because he just finished the greatest race of all. And oh, to be there when he crossed from death into life to look into Jesus' face. To look and see him. You don't clap in the face of death if you don't know the one who's defeated death. 
You don't clap. There's no rejoicing. But when you know Christ, you can rejoice. You have no need to fear because death simply brings you to Jesus. This is the Christ we serve. This is the Christ that is worthy, who defeats death, who takes away the sting. That does not mean things don't hurt. It is hard to think about these things, but you are not defeated. When death comes, there may be pain for a moment, but you will see Jesus. So I want to challenge you and ask you this. Do you have this perspective that to live is Christ and to die is gain? But there's also an alternative perspective and you're only one of the two. You either can say to live is Christ and to die is gain because of the hope you have in Christ or you say this, to live is self and to die is loss. That is the perspective of one who does not know God. Death is frightening because it takes everything you have away. When you don't know Christ, death takes everything away. So it is fearful. And therefore, to live every moment on this life is for yourself. To die is viewed as something that is loss. But to you who can say like we sang, all I have is Christ, when you die, nothing is taken from you. You only have one of those two perspectives. You're living for yourself and you fear to die, or you're living for Christ and you can't wait to die. And that is not a morbid way of thinking, nor should we go out and seek death. Because Paul says in that perspective, to live for as long as I draw breath, I will live for Christ. But when death comes, I will rejoice because it is gain for me. And you cannot have new affections. You cannot have a new purpose and pursuit. You cannot have a new perspective. And you, you cannot have those things without it also producing a new attitude, demeanor, and posture. You were, before you know Christ, you knew Christ, angry maybe, cold, hostile, complaining, unfriendly, unwelcoming. You were harsh, hardened. But how could you know Jesus and remain in those states? Now that you see Jesus, your countenance has changed. Your demeanor, your attitude, just by looking at you, something's different. You now taste joy. You now have peace. Your life is filled and marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Your natural posture is changed. You now have a compassion for others. You now have a readiness and willingness to forgive. You now have a joy that is indescribable because you've tasted and seen Christ. And no, this is not perfect by any means, but it is changed and always growing. Consider your attitude, demeanor, posture, young person. Has it changed? It might be good of you to ask a friend, what's my demeanor? What's my attitude? Do I, am I a joyful person to be around? Because it is only those who experience true joy that are joyful to be around. The next couple sessions over the next few days we are going to discuss, this is, a lot of, this is a lot of the internal parts that change. But over the next few days, we're going to talk about how even your thoughts change. Your actions follow. And every relationship that you can think of is now altered and changed. But I want you to remember this. A mere professed faith with no change in your life 
is not a real faith. It's not. You cannot see Christ as worthy in your heart and not love Him and worship Him. You cannot see Him as worthy and not change. I do not want you to leave this room thinking, okay, now's the time for me to have to get this all together. I've got to start with my affections and pursuit and attitude. If you primarily emphasize the external things, you will miss it. All of those things are symptoms of something greater. You must beg God to love God. And young person, if you've noticed that your life has not changed, though you've professed Christ, if you notice your affections are just the same as they were, and there is no change, you need to repent. You need to bow that knee. You haven't done it, but it's not too late. Because once you place your faith in Christ, you've gone from death to life, and everything changes, not by your power, but by the power of God. And if you have experienced change in these areas, maybe not perfectly, but it's growing Praise God and pray that you would grow even more. It is not my goal or your leader's goal for you this week to be more well-behaved students. But it's our prayer that you would love Jesus. Good behavior profits you nothing if it's not linked to love for Jesus. So have you loved him? Do you love him? These are things we must ask, and I pray that you all would love Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that it's a very simple prayer that you would make us to love you. For those in this room who have seen you as worthy and have bowed the knee in faith, help us to love you more. That will trickle down into every area of our life. For those who do not know you, do not love you. Lord, change their heart even now. Let them see it is not too late to run to the one who conquered death. We just simply ask that you would help us see Christ. We desperately need you. So we ask this in your name. Amen.